Welcome to the neighborhood, a Mr. Rogers tribute podcast. I'm your host, Rick Lee James of rickleejames.com, and I run the Mr. Rogers Quotes Twitter account found at Mr. Rogers Say. As we again walk into this podcast neighborhood, I want you to know that no matter where you are from, you are welcome here. Every daughter, every son, every tribe, and every tongue. In the spirit of Fred Rogers and the life of welcome that he lived, welcome to the neighborhood. Well, as we journey into the neighborhood this week, I want to just give you a little bit of a preface. What I'm doing today is actually for a master's class that I'm taking on liturgy and the sacraments through Loyola University's Institute of Pastoral Studies. So you may be wondering at the very beginning, what in the world does this have to do with Fred Rogers? Well, if you can hang with me for about the first four or five minutes, I promise you it's all going to make sense and you'll understand why this is important. Because today, for my class and for this episode, I'm going to be talking about ordination, specifically the special ordination that was given to Fred Rogers. But before I can do all of that, I need to give a little bit of background and history about the word. So I hope you'll enjoy that. But later in the show, we're actually going to be welcoming back our old friend and neighbor, David Dalt. And we're going to have another good conversation together, too. So thank you for being here, and hang tight, because here we go, and you're going to understand what all this has to do with Fred Rogers in just a few minutes. I want to ask you what comes to mind when you hear the word ordination, or holy orders. If you're Catholic, you might think of a rite in the church where a deacon, presbyter, or bishop is given the authority to celebrate the Eucharist and provide other means to holiness. If you are a Protestant, you might think of a similar rite where churches recognize and confirm that an individual has been called by God to ministry, acknowledging that the person has gone through a period of training and discernment related to their call and is authorized to take on the office of the ministry. But let's go back in time a bit. We get the modern term ordination from the Latin word ordo and its derivative ordinatio which appears to refer to installment, induction, appointment, or accession to rank in ancient Rome. Pagan Roman society was ranked according to various strictly separated classes, which were called orders. During the early days of the Roman Empire's existence, around the 2nd century BC, society had evolved into three basic orders, Ordo Senatorum, the highest class, Ordo Equester, the knights, and plebs, the lowest class of the society. It eventually came to be accepted within Roman society that there was a higher class of citizens and a lower class. If a person was going to move upward in rank, they had to go through the process of ordination. Ordination appears to have been the way that ancient Rome installed imperial officers and promoted officers to higher ranks in the army, and it was also used to appoint persons to the cultic context of pagan Roman society to appoint a person to a cultic office received from the gods of the ancient world. Put more simply, 
When the word ordinatio was used in the ancient world, it indicated a movement upward in rank and status. When a man was ordained, he held some kind of office that separated him from ordinary people, and this allowed him to exercise power in a way that demanded the submission of others. In the earliest records that we have of Christian communities, we know that there were a variety of ministries, but strangely enough, the priesthood was not one of them. In fact, according to Joseph Martos in his book Doors to the Sacred, a historical introduction to sacraments in the Catholic Church, the only priesthood that Jesus and his immediate followers apparently recognized was the ministry of the Jewish temple priests. At some point, though, likely in the second century, these concepts and ideas about ordination made their way into the Christian consciousness as early Christian writers likened the death of Jesus on the cross to a priestly sacrifice. Eventually, the the post-Constantinian church wholeheartedly embraced the ways in which the Roman Empire was governed and Roman government and cultic practices were brought into the church. By the middle of the 3rd century, the men who presided over the Eucharist were seen as priestly ministers. For centuries now, Christian churches have been ordaining people into ministries, some priestly and some not. But the notion of ordination has been broadened to mean more than just priests who serve in a parish and preside over the sacraments. So by now, I'm sure you are wondering, am I listening to Welcome to the Neighborhood, a Mr. Rogers tribute podcast? Or did I accidentally download some church history show? What does this have to do with Fred Rogers and his television neighborhood? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Fred Rogers was not just the host of a children's television show, He was also a minister who was ordained in the Presbyterian Church. And today, I'm going to tell you the story about how that came to be. In the early part of Fred Rogers' career, he gave a lot of thought to the role of the church in television production and how the church might find television to be a useful resource for ministering to people. Fred felt that if television could effectively teach, resource, and connect with its audience, then the church should be anxious to be a part of it. Fred Rogers had felt the call to be a minister for many years, and after he graduated from college, he needed to decide what the next step would be. Fred's father was hoping that he would come back home and join the family business in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, but Fred had just been accepted into Western Theological Seminary and thought that it might be time for him to pursue a career as as a Presbyterian minister. But then something happened when Fred took a trip back home from college during his senior year on Easter break. It was during this break when Fred Rogers encountered television for the first time. Very few households in America had televisions at this point, but Fred's family had one of the first ones in Latrobe. It was a small 10-inch set that sat on four spindly legs in the parlor of the Rogers' home. Fred had a strong interest in young children and education, so he tuned into a children's program and was appalled at what he saw. He saw people in silly clown costumes 
throwing pies in each other's faces, and thought it was awful. He told his friend and biographer Amy Hollingsworth, I got into television because I saw people throwing pies in each other's faces, and that to me was such demeaning behavior. And if there's anything that bothers me, it's one person demeaning another. That really makes me mad. Once he even used the word hate to emphasize his distaste for how he felt television was being misused for children. I went into television because I hated it so. I thought there was some way of using this fabulous instrument to be of nurture to those who would watch and listen. Even though Fred was sickened by the low-grade humor that he saw aimed at children on television, he seemed to have an instinct about how the medium worked, and saw a great deal of potential in it for education. He told his parents that he wasn't going to go to seminary right away, and told his parents, you know, I don't think I'll go into seminary right away. I think maybe I'll go into television. Let's see what we can do with this. So there came a change of plans, and Fred did not go directly to seminary after he graduated in 1951. Instead, he used his degree in music to get a job in television. He was hired by NBC in New York City to work as floor manager for its network music programs, The Voice of Firestone, The Kate Smith Hour, and NBC Opera Theater. Two years later, in 1953, WQED in Pittsburgh invited Fred to co-produce a daily program called The Children's Corner, hosted by Josie Carey. The experience of working behind the scenes as the program's organist and puppeteer convinced him that he had a future in children's television. While he worked on the show, Fred also began taking classes at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary on his lunch hour. And while taking a required advanced counseling class, he decided that he wanted to focus on children instead of adults. He asked his seminary advisor if he might work with children and received his advisor's blessing on the condition that he studied directly with Dr. Margaret McFarlane. That condition turned into a lifetime collaboration with Dr. McFarlane, who founded the Arsenal Family and Children's Center with Dr. Benjamin Spock and Eric Erickson. Yes, that Eric Erickson. She consulted with Fred Rogers for nearly 25 years on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood until she passed away in 1988. It took a while, but Fred Rogers was ordained in the Presbyterian Church in 1962. He had a special charge to serve as an evangelist to children and families through the mass media, making him one of the very first televangelists. By Fred's recollection, in the early 1960s, national media staff in the United Presbyterian Church in the USA began talking to him about developing a children's television program as a denominational outreach. In 1967, George Hill, an advertising executive who was acting as Fred Rogers' business manager and agent, encouraged Fred to write a document which would come to be titled Children's TV. What can the church do about it? This passionate and blistering letter reveals Fred's heart. It said, 
Do you know that children see and hear an average of 3,000 hours of television before they ever start to school? And what will they have seen and heard during these thousands of hours of watching and listening? For the major part, it will have been charmingly cynic, sardonic, sadistic, animated tripe with slick puns, inversions, and asides. The television set is bought and placed in the home by the parents. It's as if the parents were bringing and condoning what their children see on that set. Without knowing it, we are encouraging our children to disrespect, disobey, dispel much that we feel is important in our heritage. Are our children, and the children whom the church has never been able to reach, being fed slick, stimulating, soundtrack trash a thousand hours a year, while our church schools try to teach the opposite with posters, crayons, and paste in one-tenth of the time? There is something we can do, but it's not so simple or cheap as writing letters of complaint. We can begin to produce and promote television programs for children as an expression of caring for the children of the whole country. We can communicate to a child that he is accepted as he is, happy, sad, angry, lonely, exactly as he is. The church has given beautiful citations, but when the question of strong financial backing comes up, the church has always had to retreat to radio jingles and spot quilt makers. Let's find the money to produce and promote long-range excellence in children's television. What a magnificent ministry it really can be. So that was Fred's heart. But fulfilling a call to evangelism on a medium like public television may have caused some discordance for both Fred and the Presbyterian Church. At least one fellow student remembers a heated debate over Fred's ordination as minister without a church. Even with Fred's searing letter, the church soon shifted its priorities, and Fred received a phone call from denominational officials telling him the unhappy news that no funding would be made available for the program they had been discussing as the money for the Presbyterian children's programming evaporated. One has to wonder if the church missed a huge opportunity by not giving support to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Greg Hartung, the executive director of Presbyterian Media Mission and a personal friend of Fred Rogers reflecting on this, said, It's hard to say. I'm not sure a ministry like Fred's could be done within an institution. All we can really do is speculate at this, at what might have happened if a partnership had happened between Fred Rogers and the Presbyterian Church in making his television program. Would the Presbyterian Church have come to be known as a trailblazer in televangelism? Would it have made Fred Rogers less well-known being constricted by the authority of the Presbyterian Church? Would it have made the show more explicitly Christian but less inclusive to his diverse audience? Would Mr. Rogers be a household name today if his show had only been produced through the Presbyterian Church? I guess we'll never know. So Fred Rogers, ordained as an evangelist to children and families through the media of television, 
never served one day in the traditional role as pastor of a church and never received a dime of support funding from his denomination. But through the television set, without a pulpit, and without altar calls, Fred Rogers was able to bring Christ's simple message of love your neighbor to a congregation of millions through multiple generations. Fred Rogers learned to live out his ordination, not in the way the church might have imagined for him, but I certainly think he lived it in the way that God imagined it for him. He wasn't just Mr. Rogers on TV, but by most accounts, he was even more Mr. Rogers off of the television set than he was on. He cultivated a daily spiritual routine that helped him to be the man that we all came to know and love. Every morning, with monastic-like devotion, he woke up at 5 a.m. so that he could slow down, take time, and appreciate silence and prayer. Each morning, he went down a list and prayed for his family and friends by name, even remembering those on his list that had passed away, saying their names with gratitude. But his praying didn't end at that 5 o'clock quiet time. He would then go on his daily morning swim, where before diving in the pool each morning, he would sing out loud a song that he learned from his friend Henry Nowen, Jubilate Deo, Jubilate Deo, Alleluia, which means rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, praise the Lord. After his morning swim, he would continue his prayer time as he began his work day at the studio, where when walking in each day, he would say the prayer, Dear God, let some word that is heard be yours. Fred Rogers believed that the space between the television set and the viewer was holy ground, and that the Holy Spirit could translate what was said into, a, into what a person needed to hear and see on the other end. He was ordained by his church to minister to his television audience, no matter who they were and he took this charge very seriously. In this brief look at the life, the ordination, and the ministry of Fred Rogers through the medium of television, one might ask if a person needs to be ordained in order to serve as a minister. Well, it certainly seems to have been important to him. So important, in fact, that he gave up his lunch hour for seven years to go to seminary and fulfill the requirements of ordination. In the Catholic Church, the term ordination is limited to those ordination rites in which there is a distinct laying on of hands. Diaconate, priesthood, and episcopacy, episcopacy excuse me, and only those soul-ordained are considered clerics. In the Presbyterian Church, where Fred Rogers was ordained, Ordination is an act of the whole church carried out by the presbytery, setting apart a person to ordered ministry. In both of these traditions, the emphasis of ordination is on a person being set apart for the work. Would Fred Rogers have been able to offer the ministry that he did without being ordained by the Presbyterian Church? Who can say for sure? But one thing I think everyone in the world could agree on, Fred Rogers was certainly set apart. Author Shay Tuttle writes, 
The word liturgy comes from the Greek liturgia, often translated as the work of the people. Through his liturgies, Mr. Rogers dis discipled millions of people into the work, the hard, sometimes monotonous, always soul-expanding work of neighborly love. As I reflect back to the beginning of this podcast, when I shared about the origins of the ceremony of ordination in Rome, where ordination made you a higher class of citizen, moving you upward in rank, I can't help but smile as I think of the way that Fred Rogers used ordination, certainly to be set apart, but not for the purpose of elevating himself. No, I think Fred Rogers was set apart so he could go a little lower, to minister to the little ones in our world, and offer care to those special adults who provide care for them. When a man was ordained in Rome, it helped him to hold some kind of office that separated him from ordinary people. But I think when Fred Rogers took his oath of ordination, he was set apart for the purpose of being very present and very near to people in the world who needed his spark of divine kindness. Well, it is always a real treat to be able to have a visit with my guest today and my my frequent co-host, although we haven't been able to do this podcast together in a very long time. Uh, but it is so glad, I am so glad, and it is so great to be able to speak with you today. David Dalt, welcome back to the neighborhood. Rick, it's so good to be with you again, and I'm just delighted to be here. Well, thank you for taking time to be here today. This is a special episode in many ways, and listeners already know because they've heard on the front end of this podcast uh, that this is actually for a class that I'm taking, and it's doubling up as an episode of Welcome to the Neighborhood. And it's fun to get to talk to you because the classes that I'm taking are through Loyola University, the Institute of Pastoral Studies, which you are one of the professors at. So uh, you're not my professor. Sorry, I can't talk today. You're not my professor for this class, but you are a professor. And I thought it would be interesting to talk to you today, not only because of our mutual love for Fred Rogers, and not only because you are a part of Loyola IPS, but you actually have some experience that may actually overlap a bit with the experience that Fred Rogers had in that you both went to Presbyterian seminaries. And so I kind of wanted to pick your brain today about this whole idea of ordination. And I know that, that you had studied under some wonderful people there, but didn't end up going that route as far as being ordained through the Presbyterian Church. So I'm grateful to be able to kind of pick your brain today while we're here on the podcast and still get to talk about Fred Rogers at the same time. <laughs> so so my, my first question that I wanna aim at you today, David, is, as we are together here this morning, Tell me a little bit about your experience studying at a Presbyterian seminary. And as you're thinking about that, maybe you could think of some things that may have been similar that probably wouldn't have changed from the time that you were a student and when Fred Rogers was maybe a student. Or on the other side of that, maybe some things that would have changed in sort of the track of ordination. 
Sure. Well, from 1999 to 2002, I was a, I was a student at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, which is one of a handful of seminaries in the Presbyterian Church USA. Now, when I went there, I was not part of the Presbyterian tradition. I was a Quaker at the time. And so Fred Rogers would have gone through seminary as a person who had been raised Presbyterian, intending to go on for Presbyterian ordination. Some of the things that were probably similar in Fred Rogers' training and my training, I think the main thing that would be a core would be the practice of homiletics, which is a fancy word for learning how to preach sermons. Mm-hmm. I think also uh something that would be similar both with Fred Rogers' experience and my experience was an emphasis on pastoral care and learning how to be a pastoral presence. Mm-hmm. And also, if if my experience was anything indicative of what Fred Rogers went through, a lot of the work that Presbyterian seminaries do is to take students who have maybe been raised in the Presbyterian tradition and to teach them more about the philosophy and the theology that underlies and undergirds the Reformed tradition of which the Presbyterian USA is one denomination. So the Reformed tradition is part of what we would call the European Reformation. So you may have heard of the names of John Calvin or John Knox. These would be early figures in Reformation theology. And that particular type of tradition is distinct from Lutheranism and is distinct from Methodism. It's distinct from Southern Baptist theologies and practices. And all of these, of course, are distinct from Roman Catholic practices. So so what Fred Rogers would have been doing there would have been learning how to be a good Presbyterian pastor in the Presbyterian tradition, which would be part of the larger Reformed tradition. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Now, I want to ask a a more Fred Rogers-centered question about this. Fred Rogers had a very specific ordination, and it's almost as if the Presbyterian Church had to almost create this kind of ordination for him, because to my knowledge, he did not spend one day as a church pastor. Uh, He rarely ever preached a sermon, which is interesting because you just said that part of the training is how to be a better homiletician. However, um, I mean, boy, did he preach with his life, didn't he? And, and my goodness, um, I, I'd love to, to just get your thoughts about maybe you have heard of something like this since then. I have not. Uh, but his ordination, specifically with a commission uh, to children and families as an evangelist through the medium of television, um, I don't know if that was the one-time thing that they did for him, but I know that he took seven years to get through seminary, giving up lunchtime, uh, which is a big deal, especially when you're working on a TV show. That's a a, a powerful commitment. Um, so first of all, just tell me, have you ever heard of any other person that necessarily had a commission like that? It doesn't necessarily have to be through the Presbyterian Church, but just to be specific, that's the only one that I remember hearing about uh, was Fred Rogers' special ordination in that way. Well, and this is something that I don't think is unique to Presbyterian polity, and polity, again, is a fancy word for how a particular denomination orders itself and follows its own rules, Um, but it is a It is a very vibrant part of Presbyterian polity. Most of the professors that were there teaching at my seminary who were in the Presbyterian tradition had been ordained 
by the Presbyterian Church to be seminary professors. Mm. And people who went into the mission field had been ordained to the mission field. And so there is a sense in Presbyterian polity that you're not ordained as something that sort of transforms your nature and whatever Mm. you do from then on, you you are doing it as an ordained person. Rather, you are ordained to specific roles of service within the church. And so when a when a, a a pastor leaves a pastorate at, at a Presbyterian church and is not currently functioning as a pastor, that pastor still has the capacity to be ordained, but that person is not functioning as a pastor. The presbytery, again, will be involved in the call of that person with the particular congregation, and then that person will be called to the pastorate. So the, the ordination process in the Presbyterian Church is much less uh, a change of being and much more tailored towards roles. And you asked whether I had ever heard of this in other denominations. I I did, in fact, uh, and do know about this because I mentioned that when I went to seminary, I was a Quaker. My particular Quaker meeting went through a discernment process with me when I said that I wanted to go to seminary. And they, the Quakers don't have ordination per se, but they do, they're very good at writing letters. And so they wrote a letter to the seminary basically saying, we have been through an ordination process with David and we affirm and support his decision to pursue seminary studies. So to the extent that Quakers could have ordained me, I was, I was, I had a letter that said that I was released to go and do this through a process of discernment. So I think that that's kind of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Fred Rogers discerned that he had a real vocational calling to this particular type of mission field, the the television medium. And I'm delighted that the Presbyterian Church was able to recognize the validity of that calling and discern that calling with him and create a way of officially and authoritatively supporting that calling. And that is something that I said is built into the kind of natural process of Presbyterian polity, maybe more visibly than in some other denominations, but I don't think that it's unique to the Presbyterian Church. Well, and you know, I'm I'm glad you said that because I it, it makes sense, and I think I'm seeing that more all the time uh, as as I'm studying at a Catholic university, not being a Catholic myself, uh, but seeing those ways that people are uh, given charges by the church these um, uh, these special um, charisms maybe might be a, a word we we would use for them. Um, but we do see a lot of people, my fellow classmates who are studying in this seminary with me right now, most of them are not going on to be priests. Uh, they are having this special dispensation. And I, I think that actually is very appropriate when we talk about a man like Fred Rogers, who I don't think anybody could put him into a specific box. He was who he was. And part of because of the way that he cultivated his life, the way he did very specifically, uh, I don't think he would have even tried to be somebody other than who he was. Um, he he was very uh, differentiated, I think, in that way. And he was a mystery to people uh, because they didn't know quite what to do with him sometimes. Who is this strange man and the way he's living? But even more Mr. Rogers off the set than he was on. Um, so I think that's kind of beautiful as we think about kind of the life that he lived. And I love the idea that the church would ordain a person not to fit them into a mold, but to ordain that person to be the person they are in the world. And the more I think about it, the more I love it because 
for one, Fred Rogers didn't preach. I'm I'm grateful. I think that the Presbyterian Church didn't end up giving him funding for his television show, because he probably would have been put into a box that wouldn't necessarily have fit him, wouldn't have served him or the show well. It may not have served the world very well, to be honest, um, because he wasn't giving altar calls and he wasn't trying to make converts. In fact, he was very conscious that he wanted everyone to feel loved and accepted and welcome and would have been mortified if someone would have felt like they weren't welcome in his neighborhood. And I, I feel like that is one of the most Christ-like things that maybe he ever displayed on the show. He would he would so often show it without having to say the words. Um, so thinking of all that, and I just would love to get your thoughts as I've been writing the paper that goes along with this podcast for my final project for this class on liturgy and sacraments that I'm taking, I would love to just have your thoughts. It doesn't have to be a right answer or a wrong answer, but Fred Rogers did not need to be ordained to do what he did through his church. Um, he would have been probably just as big a success and a household name uh, as we know him to be today. And we could have just said, well, you know, why would he need to be ordained as a minister through the Presbyterian church? But what are your thoughts on it obviously was very important to him uh, because otherwise he wouldn't have made that commitment. I know as a person in seminary myself right now doing this, if if you weren't committed to it, you're not going to do it. It's too much time. It's too much money. What are your thoughts on what the benefit may have been to him or what drove him uh, to go towards ordination? Well, I think that he took very seriously the idea of being part of something larger. And that he wasn't necessarily trying to just fly solo. And that's reflected, of course, when he began the program on dealing with the neighborhood, he went and he talked to numerous child psychologists to make sure that what he was designing in his programming was at the cutting edge of what child psychologists understood about supporting child development and child flourishing. So I don't think that he ever wanted to be a lone wolf, but there's another aspect of this as well that I think is worth noting. So some of our listeners are going to be part of free church traditions, or they're going to be part of kind of low church liturgical traditions, or maybe they're part of no church traditions at all. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would ask for their indulgence as I make this comparison. Uh, when you look to certain liturgical traditions like Lutheranism or like Episcopalianism or like Roman Catholicism, you are going to find that every time you enter worship, there are certain things that are repeated. There's, there's a sort of gathering and entering where you move into the space, and then you do things in the space that are transformative, and then you make a ritual of leaving the space. Well, think about the way that Mr. Rogers framed every single episode mm -hmm. of The Neighborhood. You see him literally entering the space, and then something transforms about him, and then things happen happen where he interacts with you and you feel uplifted and then at the end he is doing exactly the same thing he's he's taking he's taking the things that he had put on like his slippers and his sweater off 
and then he moves back out of the space. We could almost think about this as a kind of repetitive liturgy, where there are certain things that when you enter that space, you know will be repeated every time. That doesn't mean that every single thing that happens in that space is always the same, but Mr. Rogers wanted to make sure that there were certain touchstones that viewers could count on every single time that they tuned in. They would happen in the same order, they would happen at roughly the same time, and they would all have kind of the, the same sort of meaning. And that allows then for a real kind of improvisation and openness to surprise in the rest of that space. The, 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 the repetition creates a structure where the spirit can begin to move. So that would be my take on how he would use something like the homiletical and liturgical training he would have gained in seminary to think about what parts of this need to be repeated so that people, when they come in, they know that they're that we're gathering for something thing that's important. And the walking in is not as important as what happens once we're here. But Mr. Rogers doesn't appear out of nowhere. He yeah. wanted to make sure that the viewers always saw, the young viewers always saw him come in. And so they understood the context of why this man was sitting there suddenly and talking to them as if they were friends. Mm -hmm. And so all of this, I think, is liturgical. And it's powerful because of the repetition. But the repetition is not the point. That's kind of where I, and, and this is where we can get the, the larger liturgical idea about this. Repetition is powerful in liturgy, but the repetition is not the point of liturgy. Mm. The repetition allows for a sense of belongingness and uh, at homedness that then allows for the spirit to begin to improv improvise and for people to be able to greet each other in the geniuses that they are. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so good, David. Thank you for that. I'm glad you shared your thoughts today. And I think we all could say, especially those of us that grew up watching the neighborhood or even afterwards, uh, we very much do see those those patterns. We may not have realized it at the time, but there there is something. You're right. It's comforting. It's warm. It's it's when I, Mr. Rogers used to always say children like to be told, you know, they, they need to they want to know what's a, what's ahead, what's about to happen and where they're going. And maybe that's part of what was so warm and welcoming. Uh, especially in, you know, as as we know, so many children are growing up in such unstable environments. Um, I, I wish there was a, a Fred Rogers today uh, to be able to uh, express uh, to to them that there's a, a a safe place and a stable place. And you have some other comments to add about well, that? Well, yeah, I, I just want to add one more thing. And I don't want to strain the metaphor too far. But I, I'm thinking right now about the way that particularly Catholic liturgy is structured, and it, it sort of moves in two parts. After you've entered into the space, you spend some time in Catholic liturgy in what's called the Liturgy of the Word, and then you spend time in the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And think about this in terms of how Mr. Rogers' television programs moved each time. He would spend some time in the first part of the program dealing with tangible things. Maybe he'd go to a crayon factory. Maybe he'd he'd go and he'd he'd have his teeth examined by a dentist or he'd he'd go and he'd get his shoes repaired. You know, you're you're kind of learning about the tangible things of the world and you're getting kind of grounded in things that are real for want of a better uh for want of a better phrase. And then there's a very distinct break, and then you're dealing with things that are more supernatural, more imaginary, more imaginative. Mm. And again, I don't want to overstrain the metaphor here, but we can see a similar kind of move happening in Catholic liturgy. 
in the in the first part, the liturgy of the word, you're getting valuable lessons about kind of how we are to interact with one another as moral creatures and the ways in which we are to use this world with which we have been gifted. And then there is this turn towards something that is transcendent, something that is greater than what we see, something that is more than simply the, the world of objects. And suddenly we're presented with um, something that is incongruous to us, where mm -hmm. someone in, in, in Catholic liturgy, someone is holding a, a cup of wine or holding a wafer and saying, this is the body and blood of Christ. And the respondent is saying, amen. That's not a tangible, measurable, uh, physical act. That is something that is imaginative. It is it is a very serious kind of make-believe. Mm -hmm. and, and by saying that it's make-believe, I think that I'm trying to frame it in the same way that Mr. Rogers would talk about that section of the neighborhood of make-believe. Make-believe for Fred Rogers is not frivolous. It's some of the most important and serious work that we do because it allows our imaginations to help us to integrate our whole selves, what the Jesuits, you know, we teach, I, I teach at a Jesuit school, what the Jesuits would call cura personalis, care for the whole person. But, but to care for the whole person means caring not only for their physical selves, but for their imaginative, their emotional, their spiritual selves as well. And I think that Mr. Rogers built into the liturgy of the neighborhood a space for that kind of transcendent moment. So again, I don't want to put too much weight on this metaphor and say it's exactly like a, like a Catholic liturgy, but I do think that there are some parallels that are in Constructive. Right. That that's really good, David. And you know what? Just to, to bring us back to for our for our listeners that may not even have any particular church tradition, or maybe they're part of a different one. And I know we may have uh, we have a lot of different faiths that even listen in. And so I want to I want to remind everybody you're also welcome in this dialogue today. And to bring it all back around to the idea of the land of make believe. Um, you are exactly right in that make-believe didn't mean it wasn't true. Uh, <laughs> we we have a hard time sometimes, I believe, uh, with, you know, one time I remember posting something online and it was a, a quote from Tolkien and uh, one of the characters and, and one of my pastor friends, um, uh, he wrote on there, you know, that's not real, right? There's not real characters. <laughs> And, I, and somebody else replied, oh, it's real and it's true, you know, and, and, I, and I think that's, that's a, a beautiful thing for us to remember that just because something didn't necessarily happen doesn't mean it isn't true. Uh, and just because something happens in what, what Fred Rogers would call make-believe doesn't mean that it's not um, immeasurably significant, you know, and that, and that really there are things that are character forming. There are truths that we learn. And I, I'm so grateful that Fred Rogers helps us to have that kind of imagination to stop and think through things. I, I even love the way that, you know, the the minister side of things, I guess, if we talk about something like the land and make-believe, it seemed like most of the conflict on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, it took place in that land of make-believe. Characters were having difficult times. They would have to talk through things and uh, the arguments that they would have, um, it, it was important for them to be able to work those things out together. And I mean, Fred Rogers' first uh, week of shows, I think, that he ever taped were about war. And uh, it's, that's a pretty big topic for, you know, a preschool show, even for by today's standards, I would think. So imagine that we would be people of such imagination that we would help our children 
even think through things like war together as there must be some other answer than maybe just annihilating one another and and how do we come to a place of understanding and and um i know you must have more thoughts about that as well well i wonder and and i want to say this again recognizing that everyone is welcome in this conversation not just people that are part of a religious tradition but i wonder how much more welcome people might feel in religious traditions if religious traditions across the spectrum would take some time and ask questions like, what do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? Yeah. Like if we could learn in our liturgy, the simple lessons that Mr. Rogers was trying to teach us in the neighborhood, how much more effective would we be in terms of spreading whatever kind of good message we think that we're spreading when we go into a worship space and then we're turned outward and sent into the world? I wish that more people went into the world thinking about reconciliation and thinking about peacemaking rather than thinking about being right all the time and being viewed as right all the time. To me, I think that is one of the great blessings that Mr. Rogers gave us. He was the Reverend Rogers, but he never pointed towards that aspect. Rather, he dealt with the doing justice, the loving mercy, and the walking humbly aspects that people in the Christian tradition and in the Jew the Jewish tradition get from a text like Micah 6.8. Mm. Well, those are good words to us, David, and I really appreciate you coming on to share. I, I used to, whenever you would be on the show more regularly, I would call you sort of our, our neighborhood podcast, Mr. McFeely, because you always brought, uh, you delivered uh, good things for us, and today was no exception. You delivered some, some wonderful things to our hearts and our minds today, so I can't tell you how grateful I am for you, and you've been a big part of my journey. Uh, along the way, uh, not only as as a musician from the times when you brought me on your radio show uh, and been able to talk about music, but then these conversations and then even times when we just um, are able to, to to grab the phone and just catch up on each other's lives. Uh, I just want to say uh, I'm, I'm grateful for you today. So thank you for being a part of this conversation. And I know that our listeners have really enjoyed it as well. Well, Rick, the feeling is mutual. I'm grateful for your friendship, and I'm so grateful for these times I get to come and join you on Welcome to the Neighborhood, because I love being with you and being with your listeners, and I love talking about Fred Rogers. Thanks again for having me back, and I look forward to the next time. Me too. Thank you so much, David. Well, I just want to say thank you today for the different authors that I used in the making of this podcast. Darius Jankowicz, I hope I said that correctly. Uh, Jay Martos, uh, Shay Tuttle, uh, Mr. King, uh, thank you for, for being your, your life and work. Max King, that's a great book. Amy Hollingsworth, S.T. Allison, uh, G.R. Gothals. Max King again, uh, Michael Long, uh, the, the list goes on and on. Presbyterians Today, the website, there's just so many. And uh, you can, if you'd like to read my paper, I'm happy to share it with you and give you all of uh, the, the bibliography. But for now, I'm just going to leave it at that and say thank you to everyone who contributed to this podcast today, including my friend David Dalt. It is always a pleasure to be able to have these good conversations with good friends. And I'm so grateful for all of you who are a part of this neighborhood. So until next time, 
thank you for joining us here this week in the neighborhood. To the Mr. Rogers Say community on Twitter, I want to say thank you. I'm your host, Rick Lee James. My personal Twitter account, or X account, whatever we're calling it, is at Rick Lee James. My website is rickleejames.com. My other podcast is called Voices in My Head, the Rick Lee James podcast. And I look forward to being with you again next time. So until we meet again, remember, you make each day a special day. You know how? By just your being you. There's only one person in this whole world like you. And people can like you exactly as you are.